Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us today, that you would challenge us today, that you would expand our view of you today, that we might recognize a bigger gospel, a bigger salvation, a bigger eternity, that you would change how we see the future, that we might change how we live today. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. So there you are. You're going on a car trip, but you don't know where you're going. I mean, you know the destination. You don't know how to get there. Now, when I was a kid, back when we had to walk up the hill both ways through the snow, uh, we had these big pieces of folded paper that were called maps. Uh, and what you would do is you'd have to find the right map, you'd have to find your location on the map, you'd have to find your destination on the map, you'd have to figure out wh- how to connect all the lines to get from point A to point B, then you had to figure out which way the map actually goes in regard to reality, and then finally you could start on your journey. Of course, at some point the technology upgraded all of this. I want to say the first really good one was MapQuest. I don't know how many people remember this. You would just type your destination and your location into your computer. It would then find the route, and then you would print that out. So you would have a piece of paper with directions and all the right markers and all the right turns identified. But of course, if you were to veer off that map, you would be lost forever. And never mind that your car probably became full of these stacks of paper in the glove compartment and on the seats and behind the seat of destinations you had been on. And on the odd chance you would have to go back, because we were so used to maps, you thought, I should keep that. And then you just had a pile of random addresses and lines. That's, that's all that was, just directions. Of course, technology advanced again, because it turns out that many of us have devices that can do a little bit of GPS work in them. With a little bit of clockwork and connecting to various satellites in orbit and a lot of really slick math, you can triangulate where you are. So at that point, as long as we also know where we're trying to go, the system can calculate how it thinks you should get there. Alas, I I don't know if you've had this happen to you. Some of these systems are so slick, they'll even tell you the manner in which you'll get there. Uh, Normally, you don't see this until you've made a mistake, but if you're sitting at the church and you type in, I'd like to go to Dallas from here, and you have the wrong button clicked, it'll tell you it'll take about nine hours and 35 minutes, which doesn't sound right. I mean, traffic's traffic, but that seems a little excessive. And then you notice those are the walking directions to get you to Dallas, and then you have to click back. So you could go that way. You could also take public transportation, sort of, or we finally click the drive directions in 38 minutes or so from here to there. Of course, sometimes we also run into the problem that while you know where you want to go, there are places, especially in Texas, where it loses signal. So it doesn't actually know where you are. It just knows that if you're somewhere, this is where you're trying to get. And also, the the device still can't take care of the problems that are happening not outside of the car, but inside of the car. Are we there yet? How much longer? She's on my side of the line, and and all those kinds of problems as well. We haven't solved that problem yet, but it's coming. I tell you all of this to give you an analogy that we'll be using in a minute, but also to make the mostly self-evident point 
that if you're trying to get somewhere, it's helpful to know where you are, it's helpful to know where you're trying to get, and it's helpful to know how you're supposed to get there. Which brings us to church today, because as we'll talk about, what if most of us don't actually fully know where we are or where we're going or how to get there? We think we do, but I don't know that we have great answers. More than that, I'm not very sure that we even know what we're talking about when we do talk about that future destination. I mean, sure, sure, heaven is a wonderful place. There's a song about that that I sang when I was a kid, but what does that even mean? Anytime non-Christians describe heaven, it seems really kind of Hollywood Beverly Hills-ish. And whenever Christians describe heaven, it always seems kind of like a boring white place. What happens if you don't like harps or clouds or white robes? Then, then what do you get? Plus, eternity sounds good and all, but, but it also sounds a, a little, well, it sounds long. Does that ever get dull or tiring or uncomfortable? Plus, in talking about heaven, oftentimes the question comes up, well, who's even going to be there? I, I mean, am I, am I, are, are, are my friends going to be there? Are, are my family? You see, even for most Christians, heaven doesn't seem all that great. It just seems better than the other place. But therefore, it's no wonder why most Christians have a faith that's simply too small, or a gospel that's simply too small, or an eternity that's just too small. Which brings us back to this new series. In this series, we're working to recognize that a lot of what we've come to understand as our faith has become oversimplified, overly simplistic, too small. And the bigger problem is that this has also then made our gospel and our salvation and even our view of God too small. And so like we talked about last week, we settle for a, a gospel, a good news that's all about some kind of transaction, saying a prayer, receiving Jesus, coming to Christ, a personal relationship, even though most of those things simply boil down to some action taken, not a grace given. Plus, all of those are all about us as individuals, which seems a little small as well. And, and let's not forget that those aren't normally the answers that Jesus gives to those questions. But again, to be clear, it's not that any of those things are bad or wrong. My question for us that I want us thinking about is, but are they too small? Does God want something bigger? It should go, go without saying why this series is important, but it's worth highlighting that too many of us don't have a clear idea of who God is or what we're supposed to believe or what we're supposed to be doing. More than that, sometimes I worry that we as Presbyterians have gotten a little sloppy, a little lazy with what we believe, or at least unclear and uncertain. We've settled for slogans and bumper stickers and euphemisms instead of doing the work we've historically done of actually working and wrestling and striving to understand. That, that used to be who we were. That, that's kind of our thing. And yet I worry that we've given up this calling and instead we follow everyone else and settle for about a third grade Sunday school faith. 
And there's nothing wrong with that if you're in third grade. But the rest of us should probably be past that. And so I'm hoping that in this series, you'll be challenged a little bit. I, I'm hopeful that I'll say some things and you'll be like, uh, that, that doesn't sound like what I believe, but you make a, okay, I need to dig in a little bit more here. I'm hoping that as we do some work together over this six-week series, that at the end of it, our faith will be stronger and our vision of God will be bigger. So hang in there, because this will get pokey at times, I hope. Uh, with all that, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 13. Mark 10, 13. We've done a similar passage very recently, um, but what I want you to listen for when I read today is all of the different various words that are used to describe heaven or the kingdom of God or whatever that language is. Look for different phrases that are used to describe heaven. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for Him to place His hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, He was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to Me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And He took the children in His arms, placed His hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give a false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to His disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at His words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mother, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. 
Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Amen. Now, before we get to this week and our topic of eternity, hopefully you kind of logged a couple of those words there for a moment. Put a pin in that. We're coming back to that. But it is worth noting something about where we were last week from today's passage. Remember, we were talking about our gospel being too small. And in our passage, the main part of our text opens with a man running up to Jesus and asking him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, look, I'm not very good at evangelism, but this man's question seems like a pretty easy pitch to hit. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luckily for us, for everyone, really, we've got our big hitter, Jesus, up at the plate, so this is going to be good. He's going to give a really clear, helpful answer that we'll all be able to, to really take into the future. I mean, this should be the kind of the once and for all answer. What is the gospel? How does one get salvation? What must someone do to be saved? Now, again, as as Presbyterians, we know that Jesus knows his theology, so he's probably going to start by correcting the fallacy that's just in the man's question initially. Uh, Well, here's the good news. You don't have to do anything. That's actually not how this works. It's all about what I'm going to do. It's all about what God has already done. It's all about grace and mercy and love. That's how Jesus is going to start the answer. And then we're kind of expecting Jesus to then fall into some of the ways that we would talk about it. Repent, confess, accept, receive, come, go to church. Uh, Let me tell you about a personal… pray this prayer after me. Only, you'll notice, he doesn't at all. And again, if there was ever a time to just lay it out there and be clear, this seems like a pretty good opportunity. Plus, Mark is right there, ready to write it down. And frankly, Matthew is too. This story is almost verbatim in Matthew chapter 13. So again, Jesus, let's get this right. But Jesus doesn't say what we'd expect him to say, what, what we'd say, which is rather telling. Instead, Jesus pivots to talking about goodness and the commandments of all things. And, and we're thinking, come on, Jesus, this man's ticket to heaven is so close. Don't get distracted. Stay on target. This is your opportunity. That's what we want to we say, but maybe we're getting something wrong. Maybe Jesus sees all of this differently than we do. What's more, Jesus and the disciples throughout this whole passage seem to be using very, very different words to describe heaven almost interchangeably. For us, most of us, we would call all those things different things. Our passage begins with Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. Then the man runs up and asks about eternal life, and Jesus invites him to have treasures in heaven. But then Jesus is also talking again about the kingdom of God, and the disciples ask, well, then who can be saved? Only to have Jesus end the passage by talking about this age and an age to come, and then eternal life again, before finally talking about dying and rising. 
We define all those things very, very differently, and yet in this passage, they all seem to be used interchangeably. Is eternal life equal to heaven? Is that also equal to the kingdom of God? Is that also equal to salvation or being saved? Is that also equal to the age to come, rising from the dead? Notice, we would often define those things slightly differently. In our story, no one seems confused by all these changes. But let's finish going through the story, and then I want us to talk really about what it reveals about eternity. The man wants to inherit eternal life, and Jesus seems to get hung up on this idea of goodness, though that might be important in a minute. Jesus points the man toward the commandments and names all the commandments that are about our relationship with other people. Remember, Ten Commandments, the first four are often talking about our relationship to God. Presumably, the next six are talking about our relationship with one another. And so, Jesus names six commandments here, but He doesn't name all six. He sort of takes one of them and splits them into two, so it sounds like six. You can count six, but He leaves an important one out, thou shall not covet. Our guy hears the six, recognizes that there's one that's missing, so I'm doing really good. I mean, technically, I've never murdered, so uh, I think we're good, Jesus. If that's the requirement, I'm good to go. And in a beautiful moment, Jesus looks at our guy and loves him because he knows what needs to happen for this man to find health and life and peace and eternity. Sell everything, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. But the man hides his face and goes away sad because, of course, the man had great wealth. Now, that's not always Jesus' answer. But to this guy, that's his answer. Sell everything, give to the poor, and you will find treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. Somehow Jesus knows that the thing that's getting in this guy's way is his unhealthy relationship with his possessions. He's he's caught the disease of always needing more. He believes he can't have enough. He never will. He's become dissatisfied with what God has blessed him with. And all of that is keeping him from, from God. It's also telling even in the man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is an inheritance if not stuff? Things you could covet. This is so much this man's focus that he can't even, the the, the word just kind of sneaks in there. You don't notice it except maybe Jesus did. The man can't let it go. But notice this doesn't just have an effect on the man at some point in the future after the man dies. It also has a profound effect on this man right now. Because at minimum, he's unable to follow Jesus right now. He's unable to live the kingdom life right here. He ends up walking away and missing out on peace. 
Jesus seems to shake his head and express his own sadness at how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the sense we get is that the disciples are a little shocked by all this, not least because clearly someone who is rich has been blessed by God, and so if anyone can be saved, it should be them. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus simply says, encourages them by telling them all things are possible with God. Peter, being Peter, chimes in, but, but we're good, right? We're, we, we, we did follow you. We left stuff, so we're, we're good. And Jesus points out that those who follow will receive their rewards in this present age and the age to come. Then Jesus continues on with the disciples, astonished everyone else is afraid, and Jesus tells them he's going to Jerusalem to be killed, but he will rise again the end. Which brings us finally back to our topic for the day but with a lot of that background work finally done. Remember, today we're talking about eternity, but also how maybe we've made eternity too small. And so briefly, before we're done, I want us to simply relook at the when of eternity, the where of eternity, before talking about the who and the what of eternity. Because again, if you don't know where you are or where you're going, You're not going to understand how to get there or even where you are right now. And so we begin with the when of eternity, because in hearing Jesus talk about these things, He doesn't seem as concerned with the time piece of this as we often think about it. When you're thinking about eternity, you're thinking about a clock that just keeps going. Jesus doesn't. He doesn't seem to be as concerned with the later of eternity, because he seems to continually be pointing us back toward the now of eternity. And in this, maybe we miss something here as well. You see, the reality is that when we make eternity only about the future, then we lose Jesus' belief that now matters too. (coughs) Pastor John Ortberg writes, In her book, Images of Salvation in the New Testament, Brenda Colden writes that the eternal life the Bible talks about is not primarily marked by its duration. Eternal life is qualitatively different from mortal human life. It is the life by which God Himself lives. It is primarily qualitative rather than quantitative. Eternal describes the kind of life one has in Christ. Did you notice that? What if eternity isn't so much talking about the ticking clock kind of time? What if it's talking about a different way of life, a different way of being, a way of being in which time ceases to matter so much? We experience this in small in everyday moments. You're doing something terrible, staring at a clock, waiting for the sermon to be done. Time slows down, which is why you never should want a sermon to be done. It just takes longer that way. Whereas the first time you fall in love and you're sitting there and all of a sudden you realize six hours have passed, where did that go? We just got here. What if eternity's more like that? Then one second, one second, one second for a long time. Maybe eternity is later, but it's also something we can experience right now. But maybe we're also missing something on the where of eternity. 
Because too often we make eternity all about going somewhere else when we die. We are here. We hope to go there. We hope not to go to that other place. The problem, of course, is that at best, this puts all of our focus on that other place. But when that happens, we stop seeing this place as a place that matters too. And yet Jesus seemed to profoundly care about here and now. And in this, maybe we get something wrong. Maybe we get something too small. In fact, Rob Bell makes the interesting point in his book, Love Wins, that it often appears that those who talk the most about going to heaven when you die talk the least about bringing heaven to earth right now. As Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At the same time, it often appears that those who talk the most about relieving suffering now talk the least about heaven when we die. He goes on, if you believe that you're going to leave and evacuate to to somewhere else, then why do anything about this world? A proper view of heaven leads not to escape from the world, but to full engagement with it, all with the anticipation of a coming day when things are on earth as they currently are in heaven. Jesus didn't seem quite so concerned with helping this guy get somewhere else. Jesus seemed pretty concerned with changing the guy here. Jesus was concerned with him participating with God in what God is doing here. Jesus was concerned with this man's heart now. Jesus was concerned with setting this man free from the sin he was stuck in so that he would be free for God. Because eternity isn't just far away. It's also right here. Which brings us finally to the who and the what of eternity. Sometimes I think we miss this part too. By that, I don't mean who gets in and who doesn't get in. Because first, that's not our job. Second, we're terrible at that job. Not to mention that it gets us focused on who is in and who is out, and that never does anything healthy for us. Anytime you're trying to figure out who's in and who's out, that normally takes you to a bad place very, very quickly. No, when we talk about the who of eternity, we may need to recognize that oftentimes that's more of a what. Because Jesus, and we quoted this last week, Jesus in John 17, 3 says, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I wonder how it would change us to think of eternal life as knowing God. What if heaven and being saved and the kingdom of God and eternity are less about something or somewhere or some when else, but what if it's about someone? That then starts to change things. It's why it's so easy for God to make all things possible, because knowing God is right here. It's why goodness is so important to that eternal life question. Because in having a relationship with God, goodness is kind of key. It's why following is so fundamental to the faith. Because you have to follow the king in order to know him. 
Because where we're going and where we are end up all being about knowing God and being known by God. Of course, the really good news in our passage is that it's not just the man that Jesus looks at and loves, but it's us too as we seek to follow him better, as we seek to know him better. Let's pray. Lord God, there's so much here. Of course there is. Because when we talk about eternity, we're talking about bigger things than we normally deal with. And of course, this brings up all sorts of questions about the nature of heaven and hell and, and, and all of that. But, but Lord, we pray that you would help us simply recognize that eternity is bigger than we normally make it. That you are bigger than we normally see you. And so, Lord God, we pray that we would recognize that eternity is far away, and yet it's right here too. It's later, but it's right now. Lord, it's about knowing you. And that's something that we all can do because you come to us. You know us. The good news is you came to us. And you always have. And you always will. And so, Lord God, we pray that as you expand our perception of what we're talking about, we might come before you better and get to know you more. And in that experience, eternity. Lord, we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.